I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People constitutional podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we discuss the most important constitutional and statutory ruling of the week, uh, a decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit calling into question the administration's NSA metadata surveillance program. This is an exciting milestone for the We the People podcast series because I'm joined in our brand new podcast studio at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia with two special guests who have just testified before a meeting of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, which is meeting at the National Constitution Center today. Uh, My guests are Deborah Perlstein, an associate professor of constitutional and international law at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law at Yeshiva University, and Bobby Chesney, who is the Charles I. Francis Professor in Law and Associate Dean for Economic Affairs at the University of Texas School of Law. In addition, we're joined by telephone by Stuart Baker, a partner in the Washington office of Steptoe and Johnson and host of the superb Steptoe and Johnson Cyberlaw podcast. Stuart and Ben Wittes, the host of the Lawfare podcast, recently hosted a remarkable beer-fueled podcast, a live <laughs> event with, with alcohol that uh, illuminated Section 215 in all sorts of ways. We just have some Caesar salads and uh, cookies here at the Constitution Center, but we are sure that we will have a similarly robust debate. All right, let me briefly introduce the Second Circuit ruling and then get right to it. Uh, last week, uh, the Second Circuit handed down what may be the first of three significant appellate court rulings on the Patriot Acts Section 215. Uh, the Second Circuit said in the case ACLU versus Clapper that the current use of the program by the Obama administration was beyond the scope intended by the framers of the law. The judges did not explicitly rule on the constitutionality of Section 215, although they alluded to them, as well as to the June 1st deadline, which is approaching for Congress to extend, rewrite, or eliminate Section 215. Um, I want to begin with the statutory aspects of the ruling. Uh, Judge Gerald Lynch held, uh, and I'll quote from the decision, the government takes the position that the metadata collected are relevant because they may allow the NSA at some unknown time in the future, utilizing its ability to sift through the trove of irrelevant data it has collected up to that point to identify information that is irrelevant We agree with the appellants that such an expansive concept of relevance is unprecedented and unwarranted. Uh, Deborah Perlstein, tell us more about that aspect of Judge Lynch's ruling and whether or not you agree with it. So uh, this aspect of the ruling I think is actually the most straightforward and in my view should be the least controversial. This is a basic issue of statutory interpretation. Congress passed a law that said you can collect this information if it's relevant to an investigation. Um, And traditionally that understanding of what's relevant to an investigation is, number one, limited to a specific investigation, so not all the information in the world, Um, and also relevant in a sense that it is within the realm of uh, the facts one might imagine specifically uh, pertain to that 
individual investigation. The metadata program and programs like it um, operate on a principle of bulk collection. Let's get all the information we can about everything within this particular channel of communications um, and then later see whether or not anything um, turns up that we think might be useful. I think the court was right to conclude that wasn't Congress's intent when it passed the law in the first place. That's not the ordinary meaning of the term relevant. Uh, and it really does move the government outside the criminal context, outside even the earlier intelligence collection context, into a realm of just generally vacuuming up information, um, as the court said, with the hope that at some point it might be useful. Stuart Baker, do you agree with Deborah Perlstein's characterization of the 215 ruling? And also, do you agree or not with Judge Lynch that the metadata collection goes beyond the intent of the framers of Section 215? I agree with Deborah. This was the most straightforward part of the uh, uh, opinion and the uh, the most uh, the the part that made the most sense to an ordinary reader. I don't, however, agree with it. Uh, um, it is plain from every investigation that uh, subpoenas pull in both relevant and irrelevant information. That's, uh, there's never been a subpoena that only produced relevant information, and uh, the government then has to go through to find the relevant information buried in the irrelevant information. Uh, um, and so uh, we, we, we recognize that there's always overbreadth. Uh, at the same time, it, it makes sense that the government shouldn't be able to say there's relevant information in there somewhere. Give me everything. I just want to look at it all. Um, Where I think the court went wrong is in thinking that that sense of limitation had to be carried entirely by uh, the word relevant and by what was collected at the outset. The practical problem the government faces here is that uh, uh, by the time they discover what is relevant. By the time they find a plot where someone has called uh, to a terrorist uh, number outside the United States, which is what triggers the use of this uh, data, if they want to find people that that person has been conspiring with over a period of months or a year inside the United States, that information of the calls that that person has been has made will have disappeared. They will no longer be available, uh, and it will not be possible to find even the relevant information from the records that the phone company has. So the solution that the government came to, which I think is a practical and reasonable one, was to say, well, then we will, we will take it, we will store it, we will preserve it for five years so that we can do an analysis of who the conspirators might be. Uh, uh, but in order to live within the spirit of only looking at relevant information, we will not allow anyone to search this unless they have a reasonable, articulable suspicion about a particular uh, phone number, uh, and they will search it exclusive, exclusively for connections to that phone number. Uh, uh, it's a very practical resolution, and you kind of have to close your eyes to the uh, the government's need uh, and to the fact that the minimization uh, rules are directly tied to the uh, collection uh, to say, oh, they are only they are looking at and collecting large amounts of relevant information or irrelevant, irrelevant information. And therefore, uh, you don't meet the statute. Great. Uh, Bobby Chesney, you've heard these uh, good arguments on both sides. Do you agree first with the court that 
the metadata collection program violates the requirement that the data be relevant to an existing investigation rather than possibly relevant to a future ones. And uh, do you agree with Stuart that this is a practical solution to allow the data to be collected but only to be queried with specific and articulable suspicion? So I very much agree with Stuart about uh, the utility and the sensibility of the program, the 215 program. And and in that sense, it, it is relevant to have this information in a certain sense. Um, but I also agree that it's not a sense that was obvious to uh, on the front end when the uh, language was originally framed in the way that it is currently framed. And this raises an interesting question we haven't yet talked about. Um, after the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court began signing off on this interpretation, unbeknownst to the general public, but known to some members of Congress, in particular to the members of the, the intelligence committees, um, the statute has a sunset that's it's been renewed previously. And, and at those renewal points, some information was made available to Congress uh, revealing that this is how the, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court has been interpreting this statute. You, you now know. Well, it was revealed in complex ways. And, and one of the questions that uh, overhangs this issue is, did Congress constructively know about this uh, haystack-style interpretation of relevance? Uh, Does it count if only the Intelligence Committee members know and then other members receive some degree of invitation to come to a a classified information facility to look at a document that would have, if they'd bothered to show up, would have informed them further? I, t- I tend to agree that, that that probably cannot be the basis for a ratification argument. That is, if you don't think that the statute was uh, already from the beginning properly interpreted to allow for bulk haystack collection, I don't think this sort of constructive notice uh, for something of this magnitude that, that does touch on uh, privacy concerns to this degree uh, can effectively be ratified in that fashion. Um, that said, there, there's case law out there that imputes to Congress all sorts of knowledge about how courts are uh, construing statutes, even though we know that in many cases it's, it's a fictional uh, inference. Great. Uh, Deborah. Uh, th- I want the listeners to hear the best arguments against the idea that Section 215 authorizes the mass data collection. The Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, before which you testified this morning, concluded that the program violated Section 215. Give us, as best you can, um, all of the statutory arguments against Section 215, just so they're on the table. Uh, well, I'm not sure if I can give you all of the arguments in the in the voluminous report that the uh, PCLOB, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, made. Um, but I think there are um, a, a couple of critical arguments, at least, that maybe I'll highlight here in addition to the textual interpretation and the uh, history of the use of the term relevant in other sorts of government investigations, particularly criminal investigations. And uh, And one of the critical arguments is an argument of so-called constitutional avoidance. That is to say, um, a court will prefer an interpretation of a statute given two competing meanings. The statute might mean one thing, it might mean another. If the interpretations are otherwise equal, the court will prefer the one that doesn't pose a problem of constitutionality. And if one read um, the 
Section 215 in a way broad enough to authorize the collection of um, all of this information. Uh, One might hypothesize that it raises a question of, for example, the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment of the Constitution prohibits uh, unreasonable searches and seizures of information. Historically, the court has said, look, this kind of metadata information uh, individual has no reasonable expectation of privacy and it's information they've already shared with the phone company. We're not further invading the privacy uh, of the individual because the phone company already knows everybody they've called. But it's been a long time since the court made that ruling and the universe of technology and how individuals use it and interact with it is very different now uh, from what it was. So whether you think about it in terms of what our reasonable expectations of privacy are or whether it could be the Fourth Amendment should protect the information we give to third parties at some level, um, there is a concern that overly broad interpretations of these statutes uh, that authorize intelligence collection uh, could start to raise constitutional concerns of the Fourth Amendment, among others. Thanks for that. Uh, Stuart, what do you think of Deborah's argument that a broad interpretation of 215 could raise constitutional arguments? And more specifically, what do you think of the claim uh, embraced by Judge Richard Leon uh, and others that mass data collection does, in fact, violate the Fourth Amendment? Um, So I'm – profoundly skeptical of that argument, uh, as as perhaps one uh, everyone should be of any judicial opinion that uses as many exclamation points as Judge Leon did. <laughs> he, he was clearly as uh, committed to this before he heard a word of argument. Uh, um, uh, but I, I, listening to uh, to Deborah and to some extent to to, to Bobby, uh, uh, I thought it was striking. Bobby said, "Well, yes, there's a lot of co- Supreme Court precedent that says constructive notice is good enough, but in this case, there's a lot of privacy, so maybe we shouldn't follow the precedent." And and, and I thought Deborah said something very similar. Oh, yes, there's a Supreme Court case on point that that that. Uh, says that there's not a constitutional problem, but it's old, so maybe we should not follow it. I think both of those are uh, inappropriate for the lower courts, and uh, in light of that, it would be very uh, remarkable for the Second Circuit to have found a constitutional problem, because even if they decided that they were going to get rid of that old case, uh, uh, Smith against Maryland, uh, uh, there's a second barrier. There are many, many occasions where we say, you don't need to go through a warrant uh, uh, and probable cause process to get information if you're the government, as long as this is a special needs case where uh, in uh, traditionally or because of urgency, we have not applied that requirement. If there is any circumstance where one would say uh, that uh, the uh, warrant and probable cause requirements don't apply, it's in national security matters where you're talking about potentially the state of the of the nation, uh, uh, spies who will take advantage of every loophole. Uh, uh, those are serious concerns that led uh, the court up until 1970 or so to raise the question about whether there were even constitutional constraints on national security surveillance uh, and searches. So um, it would, again, be a major departure to decide that uh, uh, we're going to apply the full force of the 
constitutional uh, probable cause and warrant requirement to searches for uh, security reasons. To be, if, if I can jump in just Please. a second, and and then I want to hear from Bobby as well. Um, you know, to be clear, what was at issue here was an exercise in constitutional avoidance. In other words, the lower court, the Second Circuit here, wasn't saying yes, it would be unconstitutional or this is unconstitutional. The and and therefore we're changing the rule that the Supreme Court established. The lower court was simply saying things have changed a lot, and if today's Supreme Court had an opportunity to revisit that earlier case in a much different set of circumstances, today's Supreme Court might well reach a different conclusion. So there's a difference between saying we're going to ignore settled precedent and saying there's probably a constitutional question here, and I, I think there probably is. Bobby, let me ask you to adjudicate that question the court raised but didn't answer. Do you agree or not that the current Supreme Court, in light of recent rulings, including the Jones case involving GPS surveillance, would view mass data surveillance as a violation of the Fourth Amendment? So I do have a view on that. But before I get to it, let me just quickly note on this question of construction, constructive notice and precedent that Stuart raised, there's a pretty substantial difference between members of Congress being imputed to have notice of a publicly issued run-of-the-mill opinion issued by a federal district court and imputing notice of a classified FISC opinion in which uh, no one has any knowledge of, unless, of course, they did come to that classified information facility when, uh, when the chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence suggested there was something there to see. Um, I'm not saying that the argument for notice can't work in that situation. But this does seem to me quite distinguishable from the run-of-the-mill constructive notice case. Now, that said, we've, we've properly turned our attention to the, the big Fourth Amendment question. Is Smith v. Maryland still good law? And for that matter, U.S. v. Miller, which is a similar opinion about banking records. Um, the, the elephant in the room here is the, the head counting we can do with respect to U.S. v. Jones, where it appears that a, a majority of the current court was eager in that case to send a signal that the uh, the third party doctrine, where information in the hands of a business or other third party, you, you've waived any claim of Fourth Amendment protection for it, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in it, that it that it should not be carried forward wholesale into the digital uh, age in which um, the practical anonymity of, of data is gone and, and all these other considerations. Um, but th- but it wasn't a holding. And so Stewart's right that if you're a, if you're a lower court, then you're, you're bound still by Smith v. Maryland and U.S. v. Miller in, in like cases. Um, but Jeff, you ask a different question. What what do I think actually happens if and when this issue does come up to the court? The headcount from U.S. v. Jones points strongly in the direction of of a carve out, not a, not a wholesale overturning of Smith v. Maryland, but a carve out for um, something of this kind, where the qualities of digital database construction, data mining, and all the, the practical differences between that and the analog world of the 1970s, indeed the paper world of the 1970s, looms pretty large. So if I had to bet on it, I'd say that you'd get a uh, you'd get a, a exception carved into the third-party doctrine that would not necessarily answer the question that Stuart then raised, which is, well, hold on. If it's bulk metadata for law enforcement then that is indeed a problem for law enforcement. But this is for foreign intelligence collection. And there's there's this other question that people have not paid enough attention to, which is, is there a warrant requirement for foreign intelligence collection in the first place? This question has been largely shunted to the side because it tends to come up over the past several decades in the context of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, 
where the courts are already involved by virtue of the statute. Um, before that was on the books, or at least when cases arose of this kind in the 1970s, um, before the government was ac- operating under FISA, some circuit courts had an occasion to weigh in on that question. And my understanding is that each circuit to consider it, not the Supreme Court, but each circuit to consider it, concluded that there was no warrant requirement, that foreign intelligence was different. Um, and more recently, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review has, uh, has held, in, in one of its few opinions, um, that that was the right outcome. The interesting question is whether today's Supreme Court, if and when it gets the case, will also take that view. I suspect they might not, but all the appellate case law right now cuts in the government's favor. Deborah, let's assume for the sake of argument that Bobby is correct, that there are five votes on the Supreme Court to strike down metadata collection under the Fourth Amendment. What would the argument look like? What should the argument look like? Tell our listeners why you believe that mass collection violates the Fourth Amendment. Right. So I guess let me start with um, one thing Bobby mentioned, which is this notion of uh, what the Fourth Amendment does is impose a warrant requirement. And indeed, quite right, for most of the history of the study and the practice of the Fourth Amendment in this country, it was discussed in terms of a warrant requirement. In other words, if the government wants to engage in a search or a seizure, it has to first go to court and get a warrant in order in order to be able to uh, do that upon probable cause, right, that this was going to be relevant to a crime. Um, interestingly, right, in the past 20 plus years, more than 20 years now, um, the court, particularly Justice Scalia, but many of the other justices have said, look, it's foolish to talk about the Fourth Amendment in terms of a warrant requirement or not a warrant requirement. What the Fourth Amendment says is that there can be no unreasonable searches or seizures. So we're not going to expect that every time you want something, even in the criminal context, you have to get a warrant. You just have to assess whether in those circumstances uh, it would be uh, an unreasonable search, for example. Um, So it's interesting in the sort of new intelligence context debate to hear, uh, to some extent, the resurrection of the notion that the Fourth Amendment is all about uh, warrant requirements, in part because, and this gets to the argument about uh, the foreign intelligence context, in part because if you look at the text of the Fourth Amendment and its question of reasonableness, right, then you start to see the inklings of uh, an argument why even in the foreign intelligence context, this court might be worried that bulk data collection, that is, we're not targeting any particular individual or set of individuals, um, we are collecting all of the information that travels through this channel, um, including information, at least in the first instance, that is, in the government's terms, incidentally collected involving uh, from Americans just using the internet in the ordinary course. Um, And there are several concerns about why that would be unreasonable. Number one, no matter what minimization procedures, uh, that is, uh, checks you put on the back end, once you have the information on we can only access it under these circumstances, it puts a huge power in the hands of the federal government exclusively. um, And uh, power that history has taught us, uh, we should be concerned, will always be exercised in an appropriate way. Um, Similarly, whether you think about this in terms of a slippery slope or just a sort of historical trajectory, once information is in a particular place, there is a a so-called mission creep and an effort for, well, if we can get the information in this circumstance, maybe we can query the information in this larger circumstance and so forth, um, and it it proceeds in that way. And the, the 
second set of large arguments here, and then I'll, I'll stop, goes to the chilling effect of what happens once the government has access to this information or has even more possession of this information. Um, And the chilling effect is this. If we know that the government can at any time, anywhere, and does engage in this mass collection of not only uh, telephonic metadata, but email metadata, who we're emailing when, under what circumstances, et cetera, um, if we know that the government has the ability to look at that uh, information, we will be less likely to communicate in a fully free, unfettered, uh, and and truthful way to whoever we're communicating with about whatever we may want to talk to. And that fundamentally changes the nature of our society in a way that we not may not be prepared to change it. Thanks for that. Stuart, I want you to give us the dissenting opinion. Let's assume sure. that the Supreme Court does strike oh, down meditation. It's majority opinion, I yes. assure you. <laughs> <laughs> it might be one or the other, but just for the sake of the arguments. So I, I, I think that um, we've, we've sort of agreed that the, uh, there is a probable cause and warrant requirement. I don't think that this particular collection is likely to survive something that says you have to have probable cause and a warrant, but that it is much more likely that this would be analyzed from the question of what's unreasonable and what's reasonable. And in those circumstances, things like the fact that the data would disappear if you didn't take it now, the fact that you have restrictions on access to it that are applied before anyone in the government can actually see the data that has been collected uh, all uh, fold into the reasonableness uh, uh, calculation, and therefore it's not too hard to call this program reasonable from a constitutional point of view. I should say, I think the likelihood that the Supreme Court will end up deciding anything about this uh, uh, program is below 25%. Uh, uh, It's going to be changed. Uh, The chances that it will create a conflict that the court needs to take are still pretty modest on the constitutional side, and the statutory issues have disappeared. But on the question of reasonableness, just to to pick up uh, uh, quickly on what Deborah said, uh, um, mission creep, uh, uh, judges tend to think, well, if the mission creeps, I'm here still, and I can uh, deal with it. Uh, And as to chilling effect, this is one of those arguments that uh, people who love the First Amendment insist on making without any evidence whatsoever. There have been many studies where people have been told, we're going to gather your metadata and analyze it. And they nonetheless do things that are uh, remarkably embarrassing if they thought it was going to be disclosed. Uh, And uh, all of us, I mean, I'm willing to bet that uh, uh, practically everybody listening to this has a Gmail account, which uh, is subject to being read by Google. And it almost certainly doesn't prevent us from saying whatever we choose to say in our emails. Uh, uh, So there's really not much evidence of any real uh, uh, chilling effect from uh, uh, the fact that, uh, at least as a matter of theory, it's possible to discern something about our communications uh, because of these programs. Bobby, on the constitutional questions, the Fourth and the First Amendment questions, do you want to concur with Justice uh, Stewart or Justice Perlstein and then take us (laughs) forward to what might happen in Congress and how that could affect the statutory and constitutional questions. Thanks, Jeff. I I will throw my vote to Justice Baker and convert this to a majority opinion, uh, (laughs) finding that uh, 
Yeah, you know, I certainly didn't mean to suggest that the only analysis here is the warrant requirement. It, I was focused on that because if the warrant requirement were thought to apply, then, as Stewart said, uh, the government would be in big trouble here. But it, it would be a reasonableness analysis, as, as both of them have suggested. And I think for the reasons Stewart articulated, the, the intense amount of internal oversight that now attaches to the program, the the, the way in which, as it's now currently operating, the program um, requires, I, I believe it currently is being implemented in a way that requires going back to the FISC to to ensure that you do indeed have reasonable, articulable suspicion that the seed number is is associated with a, a, a terrorist threat. These would likely lead to a, a determination that it is reasonable within bounds. Um, but as Stewart says, we're, we have a lot of reason to think that things are about to change because, of course, there's another round of sunset for Section 215. And uh, by the end of this month, if nothing happens in the next couple of weeks, uh, 215 will be gone. So what is likely to happen, um, the lay of the land is something like the following. The House seems to be coalescing around a uh, the House Judiciary Committee bill, the the, the painfully named USA Freedom Act. And, and may I say it would be a wonderful service to the public if we could get legislators to stop indulging in uh, acronym-type titles and, and titles of this kind. I, I have to teach this stuff. I hate to have to uh, stand before my students and, and talk about these sorts of things. If we, we, should be little, we should be a little drier in our, in our titling and maybe just a little bit more descriptive. The thing to understand about the USA Freedom Act, and I won't begin to try to capture all its complexities, it's it's, it's, I suppose you could say, in the nature of a compromise bill. And it's interesting because it has critics coming at it from every direction. There, there are some who think that um, the, the tightening of the bulk metadata program, that, you know, this will not kill contact chaining using telephone metadata. And by the way, we're, I think it's telephone metadata we're mainly, if not exclusively, talking about here. Um, it will ensure that the NSA doesn't keep the haystack itself, doesn't assemble it daily and keep it for five years or three years. Instead, the idea is that, well, the telecoms, they've got the haystack or at least parts of it at all times and they keep it for varying amounts of time. And we're not going to tell them they have to keep it necessarily a certain amount of time. But whatever they've got, they'll have to be responsive when the government comes asking them for the data on the call. So something like this will still take place under the USA Freedom Act, which is probably why the DNI and the AG, the, the Director of National Intelligence and the Attorney General and the White House in, in have all lined up suggesting that they would support this bill. They think that they get the functionality they need from it. It comes with lots of, of additional trappings. Can contrast that with what's going on in the Senate, where the leadership at least has uh, directly inserted a bill that's a clean renewal, just a, a straight renewal of Section 215 with no additional bells and whistles or, or other constraints. Um, Reading the tea leaves, there are a lot of people who think that it's not realistic to think that the Senate's clean renewal bill will be able to get through, that, that the House is too divided on this issue, would never go for it, um, and that you'd have problems in the Senate as well, potentially. So if you had to bet on it, something very much like the Freedom USA Freedom Act, I think, is what will emerge. But of course, it's going to be a new playing field. And as Stewart said, that's going to reset uh, the litigation prospects across the board. Deborah, do you agree that the USA Freedom Act is most likely to emerge? And if it does, do you think it satisfies the Fourth and First Amendments? Well, Bobby's closer to the inside the beltway analysis than I am, so I'm going to defer to his assessment of the likelihood of what's going to come out of the sausage maker in Congress. Um, but I think 
particularly with respect to the provision that um, Bobby mentioned, which is an important one. That is, the information won't be kept by the federal government, um, but will be kept by the phone companies who have it anyway, uh, and will be accessible um, pursuant to a certain set of um, requirements and so forth, uh, checks once the federal government seeks it uh, in individual cases. Uh, I think that's a substantial improvement over the program uh, as it was revealed by, you know, the documents of Edward Snowden and and and, and other circumstances um, in the last several years. And I think those improvements started after the revelations and even before Congress acted. Um, what's, what's pressing on the action now uh, or what makes actual congressional action now more likely is, as Bobby said, this sunset requirement. In other words, this all disappears entirely because Congress tied its own hands in the first instance. Congress said when it uh, decided to give the executive branch this authority, um, we're going to force ourselves to reconsider this uh, every certain number of years. It's called a sunset provision. It doesn't say this authority goes away and you can't have it after that period. A sunset clause says, you know what? Um, Technology moves fast. Uh, Democracy is important. This issue is incredibly important to the way we see ourselves and the way we protect rights of privacy in this country. Uh, We're going to revisit this and we're going to force ourselves to revisit this by um, making the authority expire. And I think the um, requirement in things like the Section 215 legislation that it sunsets that's absent in what we were talking about earlier this morning with the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, authority that exists solely in the executive branch, is a really wonderful and, and, and valuable um, uh, mechanism that Congress can use to, to force the public and regular debate on these issues. Stuart, if the USA Freedom Act passes, uh, would you support it or do you think it goes too far in protecting privacy and does not protect enough security? Uh, It's better than the alternative, which is allowing the uh, uh, entire authority to expire, uh, the only alternative that's on the table. The Senate may yet come up with something or they may do a short-term extension uh, to buy enough time to uh, uh, have a compromise process in the Senate. Whether the House will go along with that is an open question, but they could. Uh, so, uh, But if uh, the uh, USA Freedom Act, as it's written now, passes, it will, uh, I think, uh, uh, make us less safe. Uh, it will be much more difficult to quickly identify a uh, uh, the person who's making calls to a known uh, uh, terrorist uh, uh, number in the Middle East. And if there is a well-organized uh, plot like 9-11, where uh, terrorists have taken advantage of a safe harbor, harbor to recruit people, train them, uh, send them to the United States, and then launch an attack that's been carefully prepared outside our borders, we won't have a lot of, of warning and having this ability to do this quickly and then to round up the conspirators quickly, uh, we'll lose that as a result of uh, uh, the USA Freedom Act. And since um, we've just recently discovered or uh, found uh, the terrorists have been able to create a uh, safe harbor in Syria and Iraq, uh, I don't think it's a good idea, but uh, uh, it is better than saying you can't do any national security investigations with the equivalent of a subpoena. 
It's going to be time in just a moment for closing arguments because the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board is about to reconvene. But before we have closing arguments, uh, Bobby, I want to ask you about Judge Sachs's uh, concurrence in the Second Circuit case where he expressed concern about the fact that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court meets behind closed doors. And he discusses the Pentagon Papers case where he says the judge's mind was changed by the fact that there was an adversary in camera or secret proceeding. What is the significance of Judge Sachs's observations for future challenges to the foreign intelligence? Well, Jeff, I should probably disclose before answering that I clerked for Judge Sack. Great. In the 1990s, I was one of his first set of clerks and uh, have a very high regard for the man um, for a whole host of reasons. Now, that said, uh, the point about adversariality is a really interesting one, and it's, it's not one that I think of as being really central to the 215 metadata debate. I think it's more central to the more general uh, question of how we use the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which is an ex parte in-camera proceeding in which the government appears before the the judges, uh, but there is not a representative litigating on the other side of it, um, just like, for example, occurs in ordinary search warrant applications. Um, it's, it's a larger question about whether there is a space that would be desirable to have adversariality in, in general. Um, and you obviously cannot involve someone representing the target of the investigation in any run-of-the-mill surveillance scenario, just as you do not involve defense counsel when, when the government comes in to get a search warrant um, for obvious reasons. The thing that has come out over the past couple of years in the wake of the Snowden revelations is this notion that the FISC is doing something that doesn't often happen. It is occasionally doing something involving adaptation of statutory authorities and Fourth Amendment principles to rapidly evolving technology in reaching broad legal conclusions that are beyond the particular facts of a case. And many people have argued that in those kinds of cases, you ought to have the benefits of adversariality. And there ought to be a way to do it with a guardian ad litem or, or public advocate, special advocate type procedure. Um, the, the Canadians have something like this in national security cases involving immigration removals. I believe the British have tried similar things. And so the idea is you have a, a core of, of pre-cleared, probably former government attorneys who can come in and represent the public's general interest. Um, the devil's in the details of how you figure out when that special advocate is inserted into the process if the reason they're there is to help um, produce fruitful litigation and consideration of the broad interpretive issues, but not to run the risk of exposing the details of particular surveillance targeting. Um, I suspect it can be done, but it's not easy, and that's going to require a lot of careful work. Uh, but, it, but this is a part of the USA Freedom Act. So um, you're getting much more than bulk metadata reform with the USA Freedom Act, and this is, this is one of the most central things. Great. All right. It's time, ladies and gentlemen, for closing arguments. And I'm going to ask you, as Congress and the courts confront the question of telephone metadata and whether it should continue, what is at stake in this debate? And do you believe that telephone metadata collection does or doesn't violate the intent of Section 215 and or the Constitution? Deborah Perlstein. So I believe it violates Section 215. I'm with the majority of the Second Circuit on this. I think the question whether it violates the Constitution, uh, the jury is out, and the jury is out for this reason. It's not that 
privacy advocates should be opposed to any government effort to investigate, right? We want the government to be in the business of investigating and preventing, for example, terrorist acts before they occur. What we don't want is for one branch of the government to be able to do this in a way that's unchecked, in a way that sweeps up information about a lot of individuals who are entirely innocent and whose information is private and has nothing to do with the basis of the investigation. So going forward through the USA Freedom Act, through the executive branch's own efforts to amend and revise um, its practice here, uh, the results of those efforts are important. What they need to include is multi-branch engagement, not just the executive, but also Congress and the courts. And what they need to include is a sufficient recognition that the world has changed, that the 1970-something decision about the little pieces of information one could glean from telephone company records are not the same thing as what's available now about the scope and nature of our lives and activities. Uh, and it's time for our understandings of privacy and our expectations of the rules that govern the government collection of it to come up to speed. Great. Thanks so much. Stuart Baker, your closing argument about the statutory and constitutional issues raised by telephone metadata collection. As I said, I think the constitutional issues here are very easy. This is is a reasonable approach to balancing uh, privacy and the need to get this information. And There are no no obvious alternatives to being able to address what is a very real problem. Uh, uh, And from the point of view of the statute, uh, enormous efforts were made to brief large numbers of Congress about a highly classified program uh, before the statute was reauthorized. Uh, uh, And it is certainly the case that the Supreme Court precedents on this uh, that uh, uh, charge Congress with knowing about uh, uh, particular developments when they reauthorize a law, um, that those uh, particular points that Congress were charged with were known to far fewer people than this program was when Congress reauthorized it. Uh, um, and so I, I think it's quite reasonable to assume that the statute uh, does, and certainly if reauthorized, uh, will meet the uh, standard that uh, is necessary to uh, view the uh, program as having been authorized by Congress. Uh, uh, the question of privacy and Smith against Maryland, I think, is an interesting one, but I take a very different view on that. Our, our notions of what is private inevitably change as technology changes, uh, and um, it's very dangerous to say, I want to make sure the government can never use tools that uh, uh, change the privacy dimension uh, and the relationship with the government. And I, I'll go back to the 1970s, since Deborah did as well. Uh, the, uh, the great scandal of the 70s was that uh, J. Edgar Hoover had clippings files on all kinds of prominent people so that he and he alone could retrieve the most embarrassing things that you said 25 years ago that ended up in some small town paper. And uh, uh, the attorney general said, well, you may, the, the, the FBI may never do that again without a, a criminal predicate. Uh, and so uh, that remained in effect for 30 years, so that on September 12, 2001, uh, the only people in America who could not enter the terrorists' names into a, uh, a search engine and print out the results 
or the FBI, because they were stuck with a 1970s view of privacy that we have to prevent people from being embarrassed by what they said 25 years ago to a small town paper. But the fact is that in that time, we'd all gotten used to the fact, we may not like it, but we got used to the idea that privacy did not include a guarantee that your blind date would not know what you said that was so embarrassing 25 years ago. And we've just gotten over it as a privacy issue. And uh, uh, I fear that... uh, as big data becomes much more widely available, as we give it away to more and more people, as we learn to live with the unhappy and happy consequences of that, uh, uh, we will still be living with some Supreme Court decision written in 2016 that assumed that we would never uh, get over the, uh, 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 the effects of big data on our lives. And I think that's wrong. Thanks so much, Stuart Baker. Bobby Chesney, last word to you. I'll be quick. Three points. First, uh, Section 215, as it currently stands, is is a dead man walking. It'll it'll be gone soon, and therefore questions about the proper reading of it are rapidly becoming academic. Second, I think the Fourth Amendment ultimately can and should have something to say about metadata collection, notwithstanding that uh, it's in the hands of third parties. But that doesn't mean a warrant requirement attaches. It means a reasonableness test attaches. And third. I think that as the system currently is constrained, and certainly as it would be constrained under the USA Freedom Act, it's reasonable. Thank you so much, Bobby Chesney, Deborah Pearlstein, and Stuart Baker, for an illuminating and high-level debate about telephone metadata. Uh, This has been a great uh, Caesar salad uh, summit podcast here at the National Constitution Center. We can now actually eat our lunch because we were restraining ourselves with these great mics. And I want to ask our listeners to... Tune in on June 16th when we have a debate where Deborah Pearlstein will join Michael Mukasey, the former attorney general, about the constitutionality and statutory issues involving telephone metadata collection. Uh, The landscape may look different then than it does now, but it's the third in our series of traveling town hall debates co-sponsored by the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society. And we had a great one last night in Boston on the Citizens United case, which you can check out online and in our podcast. And please also go and check out Stuart Baker in his superb presentation in our co-hosted Intelligence Squared National Constitution Center debate on telephone metadata collection a few months ago. So this issue has been well covered at the Constitution Center. We will continue to keep you posted as things develop in Congress. And thank you, as always, for joining us for our We the People constitutional podcast. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.